Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. That's not a program, right? And programs are great, but programs don't change places. People change places. Leaders are who do that. And so we support from one. So one aspect for us is, is that. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, Check them out. Appalachia meets world. It's Will. And Neil. What up, man? Hey, what's going on? Kicking it in the 606. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how was your 4th of July extravaganza? Oh, you know it was a bang. (laughs) Literally. Well, for sure. Did have a little bit of a, do have a little bit of a story to tell. You got a hiccup? Yeah, a little bit of a hiccup. What happened? A a hiccup. So, uh, you know, the artillery shells that you put down in the cylinders and then, you know, you light the, the wick and it goes down in and shoots out the, the cylinder. So, You're the expert. I, you I know, know. I, I properly prepare my cylinders. Uh-huh. I have specially made boards that have the correct size holes in them that we put into the ground and then those cylinders fit up through them so they can't go anywhere. So what we do is to get ready, we put all the shells that go in the the cylinder back behind it a ways. Well, in the middle of lighting like six at one time, a spark ignited one of the shells that were laying on the ground, which was connected to like six (laughs) other shells. So (laughs) there's like five of us lighting and uh, had that nervous moment where we knew it was going to go off on the ground. (laughs) And we all took off running through the field. He's like taking cover? Yeah, and dove down. Like, take cover, take cover. Fire in the hole. Yeah. Uh, luckily, only two of them went off on the ground. Oh, wow. And, and then, of course, we, we moved them all back a little further. But it kind of flew <laughs> sideways a little bit and erupted. And luckily, I was pretty far away at that point and then dove in the uh, in the ground got in the bunker (laughs) i'm glad glad nobody got hurt but that's a great story yeah i am too have you seen some of the footage of uh fireworks mishaps around the country i haven't man but i know there are tons you know so there was this family in uh i think it was in minnesota that setting off fireworks in their front yard and there was probably eight or ten people there watching and their car was in the driveway and the car, like it was a minivan. I think they had the the back of it up and they had the fireworks sitting inside the car as they were unloading them to light them off. Well, one of the fireworks, one of the canisters, like I was talking about, went sideways on them and it threw sparks and erupted and set a firework off close to their car, which then set all the fireworks (laughs) off in the car which then blew the car up <laughs> and and they have the footages all over the internet from their home cameras, like their, their yeah. main camera. That's a hilarious. You can see it all. They're like diving for cover, running down the street, getting away. Literally the minivan blew up. That's hilarious. I got to search for that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad everybody was safe. I'm glad you had a good time. I heard you had some inflatables. I heard you had some slip and slide. I had a big day of it, huh? Oh yeah. Yeah. I still got the bruises to show from the slip and slide, <laughs> but uh, it was a good time. Kids enjoyed it. This is not Appalachian news. We'll get into some Appalachian news in a minute, but last time I left Appalachia, I took a pit stop on the way home. Bucky's? Bucky's. <laughs> 
What is the fascination with Bucky's? And have you, have you been? Oh, you know I've been. I actually went on Mother's Day, man. Just as future reference, don't go on Mother's Day. <laughs> was it like a it was special shoulder, treat? Shoulder to shoulder. I've stopped there twice now. It's been open for uh, two or three months, I guess. I've stopped there twice. Once on Mother's Day, which was absolutely a mistake. There was 7 million people there. And then I stopped late night at like 12 at night. And it was still packed. I probably parked a mile away. I had to walk, you know, to get to it. Yeah, so did you get gas? I didn't even get gas. <laughs> you just wanted to see the inside. Yeah, because everybody talks about it. Yeah. It's an unbelievable setup, you know. What I yeah. find even more fascinating is that they don't allow truckers. They don't? Mm-mm. That's no, amazing. No trucks. Really? Yeah, I saw that they have two world records. The longest car wash and the largest convenience store. Mm. It's like a grocery store inside a convenience store. Yeah, my kids love it. They love beef jerky. They got (laughs) like a beef jerky mall. Yeah, I I, I did like that. (laughs) I got a lot. Yeah, I saw it started in Texas. So it's not really an Appalachian thing, but I know it's regional thing and they have some throughout. Yeah, they're really growing right now. It's quite quite the investment. I mean, it's quite the, uh, uh, it's almost like a mini amusement park. It's unbelievable. 120 pumps. It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. The funniest thing about it is that I see people at the local Little League games now with Bucky's t-shirts on. (laughs) Yeah. It became a phenomenon. (laughs) It is a phenomenon. Going there not just to eat, but to shop. They need some Appalachian Meets World t-shirts, Will, not Bucky's. I did want to mention a little bit of news today. One of our previous guests, like we like to. Of course. Talk about previous guests that go on to bigger and better things. Um, Happens every day. The Happy Place Ghost with Barry Cook. You know, we had Barry Cook on the show. Yep. Who wrote the Appalachian movie that never got made. Disney. Yep, yep. When we interviewed him, he talked about his upcoming audio plays that he was working on. One of them was The Happy Place Ghost, and it's got a new trailer out. I just wanted to give them a shout out. You can go to... The Happy Place Ghost. On Twitter, it's at THP underscore ghost. You can find it there. It's on YouTube, The Happy Place Ghost. So that's Studio PB&J with Barry Cook. I think it doesn't come out until maybe October, but they got the sneak peek of the trailer. I'm pretty sure Barry Cook was a star before us, but we can we can lay credit. <laughs> we can take claim for it. <laughs> We'll definitely take credit. <laughs> Absolutely. You're welcome, Barry. <laughs> One other piece of uh, news I wanted to mention. Have you heard about Studio Appalachia? Uh, no, I haven't. It's kind of a cool little setup that um, it's actually a partnership with the School of Architecture and the School of Interior Design at the at University of Kentucky College of Design. They partnered with the City of Hazard. Envision Hazard, the Mountain Association, and these Appalachian Arts Alliance to, to set up this thing that they are calling the Studio Appalachia. Really, it's, I think, a combination of like 11 graduate students and four faculty. They, they each have a student team. They get a physical site in Hazard and, and design a concept that address some of the issues there in regards to job opportunities, affordable housing, recreation, amongst other things. But so this team designs something on one of the sites there in Hazard, and then they put it on display. They have it on display over there. But one example that I wanted to talk about specifically, one team developed a manufacturing facility on one of the abandoned mine land, reclaimed mine land sites where this facility would make CLT or cross-laminated timber, which is engineered wood that they use for construction. And so as part of that, they also paired it with a housing development designer that uses the CLT in constructions of houses, affordable houses throughout the city of Hazard. So it's just you know, it's just a design and just a concept, just an idea. But there are a number of these that the teams have put together, and that's just one of them. I wanted to mention that one because it's kind of relative to what we're talking about tonight. But I think it's a cool thing that Studio of Appalachia is doing. It's part one of, I think, of a three-year program, so we can keep an eye on that, and maybe we can have them on the show in the future. 
Yeah, absolutely. It sounds very interesting, Will. As a guy who would love to start building a house any day, I mean, that, that might be something right down my alley. So I, I mentioned who we're having on the show tonight. And, you know, with the housing, the feds have increased the interest rates from 3% to 6%. And you, ha we have seen a small slowdown in the housing boom that has been over the last year, yeah. really. Definitely take a turn. I don't know if you're feeling it yet in your local economy, but not yet here in, in the heart of Appalachia, but definitely trending that way. Question of the week. Ask anything Friday. You think there will be a bust? I think it's inevitable uh, at some point that there will be some type of bust. I'm not sure with all the all the new law, new laws and the safeguards that are in place have protected borrowers in a way that can prevent some catastrophes from happening like happened in 08 and 09. But, you know, there still has to be a, a, a slowdown of some sort. Yeah, I think there's definitely a readjustment coming. Jim King of Fahi, who we're having on tonight, obviously an expert. They do great things at Fahi, expert in affordable housing throughout Appalachia. We can definitely ask him these same questions, get his expert opinion. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to this conversation. Uh, Jim's got many, many years of expertise in, in this area, and uh, I look forward to hearing his take on it. Yeah, this is kind of a follow-up to our discussion with Layla. You know, Layla gave us that urban perspective. We wanted to have Jim from Fahi, one of the gold standards in affordable housing throughout the region, to talk about from, a, I guess, from a kind of a rural perspective, his ideas around policy, around issues throughout Appalachia. Let's get it going. All right, let's go. The heart is a blue. So on the episode today, we have Jim King. He is the president and CEO of the Federation of Appalachia Housing Enterprises, or better known as FAHI. It's an organization with a mission to eliminate persistent poverty in the Appalachian region. Personally, he has over 30 years of experience advancing opportunities for people and communities of the region and leads FAHI, which partners with over 50 nonprofits in the Appalachian regions of Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Virginia, Alabama, and Maryland to help in finance, innovation, and advocacy in areas of housing, economic opportunity, education, and social services. He was also recently, I want to point out, just recognized as a housing visionary by the National Housing Conference, or some might refer to as the Oscars of the housing industry. So Jim, we want to congratulate you for that and also welcome you to the show. Thank you for your time. We appreciate you being here. Well, thanks for having me. And I don't know about housing Oscars like Tom Hanks or nobody was there. <laughs> but thank you. We'll start with the question that we ask all our guests. Like most Appalachians are big on tradition. Neil and I's family, we're big on tradition as well. One of the traditions we have are appetizers at the holidays. We usually have a spread of appetizers that's much bigger than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, Jim, what, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Oh, well, you know, I think our family might be different. I don't know that anybody would say we have more appetizers than main dish, but, you know, it's usually about pie, pumpkin pie, or in the fall in particular, I think, or, or any kind, any kind of pie, actually. But do, do you eat the pie first? You know, I've worked for somebody who used to do that, and he was a much bigger man than me. So I shied away, shied away from that. Yeah. That's usually what happens when you go for the pie first. It, it right. You know the kind. Right? You're not ready for. <laughs> All right. Since we have that question out of the way, we'll, we'll just dive right in. You can just say what FAHI is and how it oh. functions and works with its partners. Yeah. So FAHI is, and, and we don't go by Federation of Appalachian Housing Enterprises. That, that is our legal name, but um, I don't know. I'm too lazy to like, yeah. So we, 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 we just kind of go with, you know, it doesn't have to mean anything. It's just a word. And we're just the people with the goofy name trying to do a real serious job. You like share? You just have one name? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bono. Um, yeah. Madonna. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, nothing like those. those <laughs> so, um, 
got to think a lot geekier than that. Um, so we're a co-op in a legal sense. Our members own us. And, and in fact, started they started this association back in the late 70s uh, when there were these disassociated collection of nonprofits around the region. And they were like, you know, you, you, you're going up to DC to talk to the USDA folks, you know, and we do that. Maybe what if we can, you know, what if we like work together? You know, what we try to do from the office here in Berea is they're doing the work, right? Like the, the, these local base, they, they are community leaders. It's not easy work. I think you had Highlands on a couple, uh, couple episodes back. They're one of our members doing amazing things, right? And uh, we want to support that. And we do have a couple of programs that we do, but I, I think more important than sort of like those widgets is because of the rurality of the region, this sort of rural character uh, that we have, it does you just don't get the same scale in a lot of the footprint that you can get in a truly urban setting. And so rather than trying to behave like everybody else, we just use those relationships and learn to work together in ways. I mean, right, like Appalachia, this is a thing we know how to do, right? Like we we rely on our neighbors. And so Let's just lean in really hard on that and we'll get to scale together rather than sort of separately. I don't know if you listened, but we recently spoke to Layla Fanukane uh, from Victory Housing just to get kind of an urban perspective in regards to affordable housing. And we wanted to have you on the show to talk about the Appalachia perspective but, uh, and, and the rural perspective more specifically. But that being said, 58% of your coverage area is actually urban, which I think a lot of people would be surprised about. Uh, just to talk about Appalachia in general, it's a very complicated market, especially now where in the last 24 months, you know, housing has gone from affordable to unaffordable, really. Over the last year alone, home prices have increased four times faster than incomes, We spoke to Layla about the Asheville region where a lot of people work in the tourism industry. You know, people that work in some of those service jobs aren't able to afford the homes in Asheville and are really priced out or pushed out of the market. I I read a recent Moody's report that said home prices March of 2020 to 2022 rose 37% and that homes are overvalued by almost 25%. So they're suggesting that the market overall is really in a bubble and that bubble may be about to burst. So Jim, we just wanted to ask you what trends you see in the housing market in Appalachia and how it's different in kind of the urban areas of Appalachia as opposed to the rural areas. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. Was that like, is that technically one question or like <laughs> I was thinking the same oh, thing. Yeah, I was like, that. come on. I guess we can, we can just ask you about the market. Report on me here. No prep required. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, think you, you mentioned Appalachia as well as rural. And I think, I think one, one thing is true about both of those words, right? Is that these are a lot of places. There is rural as though it was just one place, just a big misconception, just sort of generally for folks who clearly have never lived outside of a, of a more metro area. It's kind of like it's just there are cities and there are suburbs and then there's everything else. I'm mentioning sort of this for, for a reason I, I hope to come back to, but we'll see if I make that journey or not. The, the other is about Appalachia, which really is like a lot of, you know, it is an incredibly diverse place and just from a housing and market standpoint, really, really diverse. I, I lived in Philadelphia before I moved here, which was a big shock to come from Philadelphia to Berea, which was at the time the second largest place I'd ever lived in my life. Uh, Berea was the second largest place. <laughs> yeah. Cities in the in inside the region have a characteristic I think that feels a little more like uh, the rural pacing of life. Uh, it's not not quite so sort of um, big East Coast feel. So too, I would say, um, you know, will you sort of imply that like the what's happening in the housing market just generally? How is you asked the question, I think kind of specifically, how are the, the urban centers in, in the region different from, from other places? I think I'd like to I'd like to think about the diversity of Appalachia a little bit more around central Appalachia and the coal fields from, from some other parts of the region, at least as as it works in, in my mind. 
we've seen two big trends and, um, and it doesn't evenly split by city versus rural as much as it does by that sort of geographic sort of center. Certainly, if you look at something like the Eastern Panhandle, some of the statistics you threw out about the, the, the you know, the, the pricing. We saw, uh, just off the top of my head, I'm remembering one of my, one of my members, uh, and most of our members are developers. And so they, they I'm, I pull most of, most of my data that I'm going to speak from is coming from a lived experience through, through those organizations that, that are community-based in these different markets. And so if you get to the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia, you know, 2019 pricing out a 1,200 square foot home is going to go for maybe, you know, one third, uh, 130,000, very, very affordable to a pretty wide range uh, of, of household incomes. In about an 18 month period, that same house was was selling for about 175, as we saw people during the pandemic coming from higher cost markets gentrifying in a sense some of these communities and and so it certainly happened in a place like Morgantown but it also happened in little little communities like um like in Elkins West Virginia you know that that that's a big shift um and you said about 30 something percent i think um and and so the, you know this is a little north of that even depending on the on on what the buying power is you know some of it was about supply line an awful lot of it was about purchasing power coming from other markets to, to places. Um, I live close to the Red River Gorge and and uh, I know people are moving into like Lexington, Kentucky, which is a pretty hot market of its own. And, and same same thing happening there. And that's a lifestyle. These are lifestyle choices people are making where it was sort of like, you know, we came, we vacationed in the gorge. We thought it was gorgeous. We could live here. And it's 40 minutes to, you know, world-class rock climbing and some of the most beautiful trails you'll find. So definitely see that. If you move, if you move more into the coal field than that and, and you get into like Hazard or Pikeville, not seeing that same pressure on market. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about Hazard. We've seen very little other than the price of, of lumber and the pressure there, not any real other pressure on um on construction. If I can elaborate just a little further, I mean, I think, I think we're also seeing because of that fast price increase and some of those pressures, folks who've started to develop property are slowing that down because they can't, either they can't find material, particularly um, developers who are putting up multifamily aren't going to be able to debt service the property they're building because the prices for the square foot and what you're building are outpacing your ability to get the rent. That applies pretty heavily to like uh, federal programs that, that are not the most nimble as the market is moving super fast and nobody's making changes and sort of like, well, how much can you get for that Section 8 voucher? Well, uh, the answer is not enough. So we're seeing a lot of that right now. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, Jim, and how you got to Fahi? Yeah. I'm originally from Ohio. I went to Philadelphia. I had gone to um, school with the idea. I was going to, I got a, I have a master's degree in third world economics. And my, my intention was to be, you know, doing some kind of development work in another country. And that never really transpired. I had a family friend from Ohio called, I didn't know him. I knew his whole family. I just didn't know this gentleman was older than I was worked in. He works in, uh, it it started Kentucky mountain housing in, um, in Manchester in Clay County. And I called him and said, look, you don't know me, but I, I butchered hogs at your mom's farm and I bailed hay. And, and he's like, no, I've heard of your family. I know who you are. And I said, well, this is what I want to do. And he's like, you know, I don't have anything for somebody who's who can do what you can do. And he said, but but I'm on this board of this Fahi group and they are in need of somebody to handle the finances. And so I'm, I came down and that was 1990. And uh, we, we haven't left. And it's been good. It's a good journey. When we were getting the urban perspective, we were talking about cost burden. And largely, Layla and her group or, or, or that urban area, they focus on LIHTC funding, which nationally, you know, kind of supports rental units 
in urban areas where they have more density. However, LaTeX is much harder to use or really make work in Appalachia without other equity, which is often outside equity. But in rural areas, especially in Appalachia, home ownership may be the key, but housing values are low and deteriorating. When you're talking about cost burden and home ownership in rural areas, does transportation and utilities factor into that cost burden? And what have you seen that works to kind of combat that cost burden in the rural areas of Appalachia? So here's the deal. When you define an entire region like Appalachia as uh, characterized by, by persistent poverty, which, which, is, which is a federal definition, meaning that, that 20% of the population has lived below the national poverty line for more than three straight census, so 30 years or more. Most federal programs make eligibility for, uh, for assistance based on relative income. And so I would be eligible if I was 80% of the area median income. In Baltimore, uh, if you're a teacher, you make about 60% of the area median income at, I don't remember, you know, the number was something like $45,000. In McDowell, West Virginia, teachers make about 140% of the area median income, but the average income is about $35,000 there, and they don't qualify for a tax credit unit, just to kind of swing it around there. And so, and that's before, and um, do, do we include things like transportation and utilities, not in a formal way, just because so much of the mortgage uh, and, and um, multifamily underwriting world is real, real standard, and we're not in the standard. But what we know, because of our lived experience in this region is like, yeah, but you have to have a car to do anything like you, you know, and it better be reliable enough to get you to work on time. And so those things really factor in. And so the affordability for a person in the same profession in these two different places, Baltimore or, or Welch, have two completely different experiences as to what uh, housing is even available to them, let alone what is affordable. And I brought up the persistent poverty because at some point, there is a difference between poverty that is relative to someone else versus absolute. And and I'm not saying that like Appalachia is absolutely impoverished. That's not the point. The real point here is, but to have a functional economy, there has to be enough, right? Like you have to at least reach a certain threshold. And if you don't, then things don't just work as well as they as they ought to. I think we lag pretty far behind in terms of investment flowing in because capital is like it's like water. It likes to flow to the you know the path of le- least resistance. And well, Welch, West Virginia is not you know right like or, or Hazard. These are not places that capital flow easily. That's right. part of the job that we have is is to to help overcome those barriers. Do you think changing the income eligibility limits or having a national floor in that regard would help the areas? Well, such as- yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we've proposed. Um, and we've gotten a little bit of backing on uh, creating a national floor. It won't solve everything, right? But it would certainly it would certainly put enough resources on the table to, to make some things work that don't work now. I mentioned LaTeX, but mm-hmm. we know home ownership obviously builds generational wealth, important for equity. It's especially important in the Appalachian region. However, with the current challenges that, that the region does have with the high home prices that we mentioned, the low stock or the scarcity and the aging homes or the t- deteriorating homes for that matter, I've seen some solutions such as modular homes. When you're talking about modular homes, is that getting away from the idea of, of building or creating wealth to really just owning something of lower val- value? Or is that just a misconception? There might be a couple of things there that I could take issue with. Modular or factory built housing is a great is a great option for folks, right? Like there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that product whatsoever. If it, if it's just like a site built home, right? It, you can build something really good or you can build something not so good. Um, you know, adhering to the best standards and thinking about energy efficiency and quality and all of that. Yeah, that's great. You will pay for it. 
particularly in some of the markets like in in Hazard, Pikeville, you know, in the the central Appalachian counties, don't really see a competitive advantage to manufacturer modular when you're when you're comparing quality to quality. The other big factor is that model of of a manufacturer modular just moves jobs that could have been local to the community to a centralized place. And so if we're trying to as you as you mentioned rightly we, we, we want to bring it into to to persistent poverty in the region if you that at some point you got to talk about jobs and what people can earn and, and what functions in this in this market and so if we can if we can build on site give people good jobs buy materials locally all of those things the, those contribute to a better community I guess to the other end of the spectrum, you know, we talked about LaTeX. It really focuses on rental housing. Is there is there a need for rental housing uh, in Appalachia? Yeah, I mean, we have we have a we have a need for rental as well as home ownership. Actually, since two thousand eight, the construction industry nationally, but it's definitely true here as well, has really slowed down. People left the construction business never to return. And we aren't, we just aren't building enough units in this country at all to keep pace with the demand. And so what results is that, that, that adds to that pressure on the upward, you know, like how much will the rent be here? And how much is this house going to cost me uh, on a square foot basis is all, all of these things are being pushed up because we just aren't putting units on the ground. And a few minutes ago, when we talked about like how, fast that increase came during the pandemic. I, I'm not a developer and this would be a terrible time to try to get back into that work because uh, the risk to bid on something and then wonder what it's going to cost you to buy the lumber package later, even more so on rental. We've got a member right now who was dragging their feet on finishing a, a LIHTC property because the fair market rents coming from HUD weren't adjusting fast enough. And he was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to cash flow this. You know, it, <laughs> the minute I finish it and I have to start debt service, right. uh, I'm in trouble. So all of those are kind of hurting. And yeah, we do we do need rental. I think home ownership certainly is as, as taglined by a lot of folks, you know, is the American dream. But, you know, if you're a young, if you're a younger person, family and you need the mobility to be able to sell property and move to where jobs are, but but your house got a little overbuilt in a, de- in a depressed market, then now you're shackled. And so it's not an American dream under those circumstances. Rental is is a better option when you need to, to, to be more mobile. And we, particularly in the markets that, that, that we're seeing a lot of job growth, that's we're not nearly enough of that's being built. It's just not keeping pace. Just using LIHTC as an example, those properties are awarded credits in an annual competition in a state, but the market moves so quickly. Developers in any state I, I, that I work in right now are running back to the allocating agent saying, I need to apply a second year to get additional credit. It just exasperates everything because now we're going to go another year without awarding new projects. Instead, we're still trying to make do with the ones that didn't get enough to cover cost overruns. There's so much risk out there for, uh, for builders and developers. You know, when you're talking about additional capital or financing of these projects to make them work, is that where your partners are helpful in that regard? Do you combine partners or do you bring other partners into projects to help with the financing or just to make a project work? Yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting to do this conversation with Layla. Uh, yeah. In 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 some urban markets, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be, or at least in a high cost market of some sort, you 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 develop you develop property. Um, you might compete for one source of money, and the rest is private capital that you're you know borrowing with the intent to repay. Uh, since I'm an old lender, I'm gonna say intent. You know, you're never sure. <laughs> But the lower the incomes are in the counties that you're working in, the more sources of money it takes. And so you have to coordinate a lot of pro- a, a lot of partners. Uh, it's not unusual for us to see, you know, seven plus sources of money in one deal. You better have a lot of friends, right? Like, I mean, you, you need to, you need to know how all that works. You, they, you need them talking to each other, or you're just tripping over yourself just trying to make it work. And particularly in rural in rural places. 
metropolitan areas receive an allocation of uh, of different kinds of like HUD resources, for instance, and it's an entitlement, right? A lot of the places that I work are non-entitlement communities, which means they're competing for that money on a balance of state perspective. That's so CDBG or home or, or other. CDBG, yeah, tax credits even, uh, which are not, but, but now you're competing you're competing in different windows, if you will, with different people. Um, and so the complication, it's, it, it, I, I think it is, I, I think to do this work in the rural space in particular, and I know, you know, Appalachia is not more unique than a number of other places, but it's not like pushing a rock up, up the, the hill for eternity. It's like juggling 50 bowling balls going up a hill, you know, for eternity. It's, it's you know, it's tough, right? But can be done. Is it harder to attract outside capital or investment or is it possible to, like you said, partner with other organizations or to build from within? Do you need that outside investment and how hard is it to attract? We do need the outside investment. It is difficult to attract. I used to do tax credit development work as a part of what we did here. And um, we worked with a, a syndication firm from outside of the region because one doesn't exist here. For, for one, like how many national banks are in Appalachia? Not many, really. There's not a big national bank presence. These programs, particularly anything that has a tax incentive, really do require a sophisticated financial institution, and that does need that tends to be bigger, right? It's not always true, but um, and they have to have a big tax burden, and so now you got to draw them in. Uh, Well, it's outside of their footprint. Uh, The deals are smaller. They're um, to use, you know, the word, you know, they're hinky deals, right? They're they're not they're not as pristine or clean or easy as you might find in another market. And so part of our job here, and I think we do it rather well, is, is to make that path feel easy for the that outside investor. We have four big basic goals that we that we drive our work from here. And one of them is about bringing money into the region. The institutions that <clears throat> nonprofits who do similar work to what to what we do here at Fahi in in um, in other parts of the country are getting maybe 75% of their capital from banks and, and private institutions. Ours is more like 30%. Um, it's, it's very difficult for us to bring to bring that kind of money in, and we're doing well to, to do that. Uh, another measure uh, that I would use around that is the National Council on Responsible Philanthropy when you think about philanthropic dollars, right, just as a proxy for, the, for money just generally. Philanthropies gift money every year on an average in a per capita in this country it comes to about $450 per person per year. In this region, it amounts to about $45. So like 10% of the national average. That is not dissimilar from some of the other regions uh, regions I mentioned earlier. They're, they're all in about that same that same spot, which in that way means that we're more like a whole bunch of other people than, than we're different. I think a question is, you know, in regards to the pandemic, it kind of exacerbated a lot of things. However, you know, with these housing and equity issues, I don't think they were caused by the pandemic. They were just kind of merely more exposed by the pandemic. I heard someone say that eviction isn't caused by poverty. It's a cause of poverty. So, you know, you talked about this disinvestment, this underinvestment, especially in rural areas of Appalachia. It really affects the most vulnerable. It kind of hits them the hardest in those areas. Have you seen these systemic issues in in that regard? And and does Fahi have any solutions for those systemic issues? Yeah, I mean, none none of this is easy. So our simple playbook, but 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 I guess to answer your your question, your your initial question most directly. Yeah, I would, I mean, I totally agree with you that the the pandemic and even some of this post-pandemic, uh, this, the recession that we've got, you know, the, it just makes everything harder, but it, but it always hits the most vulnerable folks. As a side note, I would say the rest of the country should pay attention to um, not only what story Appalachia has to tell the rest of the country up to this point, but what we're what's what's being done. It's a tough culture, right? Like people people are resilient and they're not afraid to to, to put in the hard work. And at least that's what I get to see as we watch what is at least to me what then is being what what is transpiring is we're going to see a lot more parts of the country where we see 
more and uh, a larger part of the population kind of fall behind. That's where I would say, like, we should learn some of the lessons from from Appalachia, not just about how how the region got here, but also what what are the things that are compelling and moving us forward. As far as like the systemic side of that, then I think we we try to focus on three aspects of our work that need to be done simultaneously. I support local leaders. Those are our members as well as some other partners. That that network for us comes to over a hundred a hundred organizations in places, in actual communities, right? They're not coming in from somewhere else. They live there, which means that, that, that person who's running that organization is probably also on the school board and um, maybe started the youth soccer league or what, it, you know, like you, you, their leadership matters in changing the narrative in some of the most depressed places from nothing will ever change around here to, hey, that worked for us. We should do this next thing. Um, and, and we see that narrative play out community after community. It's, it's powerful, right? Like my favorite stories, I have a lot of stories because we've worked with a lot of people, but among my favorite stories are like, you know, I volunteer at this organization now because I never thought I'd get a home. Now I want to see my neighbors get that. And I want to be part of that solution. That's not a program, right? And programs are great, but programs don't change places. People change places. Leaders are who do that. And so we support the one. So one aspect for us is, is that. The second is from my seat, I'm working at the regional level. Some of the issues that we are learning to overcome are not only local uh, and they're not only happening there, right? Like they, these community after community, are they're, they're joined together in sort of one echo, you know, ecosystem of, uh, that, that, that we need to address together. Well, that requires we all work together. And so we do think about like, yeah, how do we bring these local leaders together? How do we work in such a way that we're more powerful as a group than we would be it, just even as the sum of the parts? And then lastly, um, which we're aspiring to, but maybe I need a different name for, uh, you know, how do we speak that into the national conversation about where our country is going and what, what needs done? What is the lived experience of what's happening in Appalachia that, um, that, that the rest of the country needs to learn from and learn about? And so all of our strategies kind of follow those three sort of simultaneous relationships. I really like the way you answered that, you know, getting away from the programs. When we asked Layla about some of their policies, you know, an urban perspective is much, much different. You know, we talked about things like inclusionary zoning, like fair housing, like rent control, which doesn't, you know, aren't always topics in rural, especially in rural areas. But you do have one programmatic thing that's very new, uh, the home sweet home product that you oh. have. Yeah, I think that maybe that's another title or name that you're trying to think about, but I think it's a really good program, especially for this day and age. Uh, it, I think it covers closing and down payment costs. Have you seen a lot of problems in that regard? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there, are, there are lots of reasons, and we, we try to track this pretty closely. There are lots of reasons to keep people from getting donor home. I'm not here to just solve people's financing issues. We take what we learn from that, and either we we make a program like Home Sweet Home, which says, oh, just having the money as a down payment in a market where if you don't have the money right away to like close and get that property, some company is going to buy it if it's, a, if it's a desirable property. And so we didn't talk about that, but that's happening as well. Yeah. And, and, and if we can't solve it, then we take what we learn. And like the you mentioned, the income eligibility national uh, floor policy piece that we have out, you know, we, that, that, that kind of gets that back to that national voice, right? Like, like we're, we're not that big, but we'd like to, you know, at least speak enough with a unified voice that if we've got something important like that and that, you know, like this stands between folks getting a chance to better their lives here, policymakers, you know, like you, you guys need to look at this and you need to take it serious. And, and, um, and we know that because, we, we actually do this work, right? We're not talking heads. We're, we're not policy wonks. We're just folks trying to get something done. Well, that's what we talk about on this show. People that actually get things done, um, you know, doers is what we call them. I did have a question just as a, as a kind of out of the box type of question. Is there a current project that you're working on that you can tell us about or tell our listeners about that uh, is interesting? And is there a favorite project over the course of your career that you've worked on that you could tell us about? 
Um, I, you know, and I, I don't do any real work, right? I, I'm the guy in the office. I, I mean, I grew up in farm country. So for me, it's like, you know, people who work are like, you know, you can tell when you look at their hands, you know, like, do they work or not? Um, I'm not that guy. Um, like me, you work with the mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all callous in here, right? Yeah. <laughs> So I guess a lot of what we talked about was housing, and these are related to housing, but but a little tangential, if you will. I, I'd say one of the things that we're working on right now is a workforce development program to address the shortage of construction workers, particularly the skilled labor, finished carpenters and um, electricians and so forth. Pretty high in demand. We've got we've got a shortage in the region of thirty thousand skilled construction workers. And then, and if you pay attention to like all of the federal money that that's that's either been a, announced or or is is coming at some point, you know, it's, there's a lot of money that could come to a place like Appalachia if we had the people to build stuff, things we need done, right? Some of that is housing, and some of it is is other uh, other types of construction. But like, we just think that this is this is a vital part of sort of like the 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 value chain or the supply chain it takes to, to put something on the ground. And, and so I'm, I think we're really excited about that. A lot, our, our members are, uh, got really jazzed up and, and canvassed their communities. And so we, we've got a couple of pending proposals that, that we expect we'll be, we'll be getting to work on that soon. And you can't talk about housing if you're not going to talk about what people's sort of economic opportunities are, right? Like, yes, homes are where jobs go at the end of the day, but homes have to be supported by jobs. I mean, these things these things are completely inter interrelated. And so very excited about that. And then for a number of years now, we've been involved in drug recovery. And this is a, you say a project I work at sort of more of a systems level. And so we've, we've been, we've been trying to complete the cycle that it takes to go from Addiction is a real problem in our region. I think, uh, un, you know, unfortunately, it really does plague, uh, I, I think, some communities. I was in a meeting with uh, Kentucky Highlands uh, folks, and there were some other folks around, and it was like, it didn't matter if we were talking about jobs, housing, education, you, right, the regular list of things we all say are important in a community. And everybody had a story in this meeting about how, um, uh, at the time, it was the it was opioid as a, as a real issue, and we decided this was not our area of expertise. But it was like, what's missing in this in this? Right, there are people talking about treatment and prevention, and and yet there's more to be done. And so we we we've been we've done about a dozen recovery centers. Uh, they have a really high rate of success. People are voluntarily there. They work on their recovery. When they come out, they're ready to join society in a you know really productive way. Then we found that they have barriers because so many of these people have been in maybe you know incarcerated at some point. Hard to get a home to rent or own. Hard to get a job. And so we've created additional support. Um, we do this statewide in Kentucky right now. We, we're wanting to get into West Virginia and Tennessee with the same approach. We have members now who are working with recovery centers. They're recruiting people straight out of there uh, who are graduating recovery, giving them job training. Uh, we're getting them set up in housing and, uh, you know, they're out there building homes and, and uh, um, getting a second chance. And the reason I like that is for that statement there, right? Like we're, we should be a country that would be really good at second chances for people, but we're not always. And I just love that. These are folks who desperately need a second chance. And, and, and it's just remarkable how often that second chance really works for them. And I, I just think it's really good work. Uh, we cannot leave people on the sidelines any more than we want to leave a, a, a region on the sidelines, right? Like that's where I would get back to, like, we should invest in investing in Appalachia is, is um, uh, I think, parallel in that way for me. Does that go as far as being supportive housing or transitional housing? Yeah, we we'll do some of that, but um, I mean, I think that's in, particularly in the small right. communities. It you know it bleeds a bit, right? So we we think less about we think of less about the housing being defined that way as maybe there's a case manager who's assigned to somebody who's just just in an apartment, right? Yeah, we've done a couple of episodes actually about addiction and addiction recovery. 
I don't think there's too many people in Appalachia that don't have a personal story when it comes to addiction and addiction recovery. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Unfortunately, yeah, sadly, that that is true. Um, um, I, I think I think I'd like it to be that everybody has a story about somebody who um, who who succeeded in their recovery. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, real, real quickly, one thing we asked Layla, and, and I'll ask you too, you know, you talk about the American dream. Do you think mm-hmm. we're better off now in regards to the American dream than we were 40, 50 years ago? I don't know. I don't know that I've looked at, I don't know that I've actually looked at that in a serious way and said, oh yeah, people's incomes are higher. The amount of wealth that um, that we have is higher. Uh, if those were the only measures, you might get away with that. Saying you know maybe we're better off. It doesn't seem very well distributed. It certainly seems to matter where you're born makes a big difference. It matters what the color of your skin is. So uh, you know in that way, I would say no. I don't know that we're. I'm not sure I could do it comparative. I would say we're not as well off as we ought to be for being the richest country in the history of mankind. Probably not. Good answer. Um, I do think we can do so much better. And I do feel hopeful about that, right? Like I would be a sad person if I wasn't an optimist doing what I do, but I do, I do in fact see tons of hope. I see, I, I see really good progress being made in communities and, and by individuals and families. I mean, I just think, uh, I think we can do it. We may all just have to look at our sort of, you know, inner selves and, and, and buck up some, but, um, but I think we can. Good answer. In tradition of our podcast and what we like to ask people, I'm just curious. We ask all of our guests this, uh, usually towards the end of our podcast, but I, I just want to know the first thing that pops into your head when I say the word Appalachia. Oh, um, I think of the gorge. Okay. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, it's my, I, Well, yeah, I, it pops into my head first. It's my favorite place. Cool. Nice. I mean, it's the it's the landscape, right? It's the what you can find in Appalachia uh, that you can't find uh, anywhere else, I guess. It feels like, a, you know, a bit of an escape from, um, you know, Berea's on I-75. Like you, you, you're in the country, you, you know, there, there are wonderful people there. There's a sort of lifestyle and culture about it all that just it just works for me. Neil and I like to say magic. There's magic in them mountains. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's true. One of, one of the other questions that we ask everybody, and, and you being someone that, uh, I guess earlier you mentioned that you're a, an Appalachian now, but you transplanted <laughs> to, to Appalachia. Yeah. Where do you call home and what makes it home for you? We live in um, Athens. Uh, which is outside of Lexington, across from Boone Station. People come by sometimes. Old men a couple weeks ago had coonskin hats taking selfies in front of this sign. You know, it's just weird, <laughs> um, but fun. My kids are all adults now, and what makes it home is when, uh, you know, Sunday afternoon and everybody's there, and it's food, and it's, you know, it's just time to be together, and, and I love that. Well, Jim... Neil said Layla and I geeked out a little bit too much on her episode. So I, I, I'll ask you, what's your favorite thing to do in Appalachia and, and what's your favorite restaurant? Oh, favorite thing to do. Well, I've already mentioned the gorge. Yeah. Um, and I, is that, yeah, I mean, it's pretty close. I, uh, I'm a cyclist. And so I just find lots of parts of Kentucky to be really great to just be out on the road. and uh, Red bud rod. I have done it. Yeah. Yeah. Was it rainy and cold? Uh, it, almost always, isn't it? It's supposed yeah. to be bright. Like, the forecast can say anything it wants. I so gonna wish be, they would it's gonna be miserable. I so wish they would back that thing up like two weeks or something. But if I'm choosing an activity, if it's not to, to take a day trip into the gorge and hike, it's um, I'm going to be out out in on my on my bike oh favorite restaurant oh i'm not very good at that there's um i don't know that i have a runaway favorite i do like windy corner um which is kind of on the clark county line fayette county line yeah it's one of my one of my favorites maybe even a more important question cornbread or biscuits oh um it both are both are awesome cornbread if it's a pone of cornbread straight out of the you know made proper in a skillet right um i, I think oh, yeah. yeah 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 i go cornbread 
Nice. What, since you said you came from Philadelphia before you moved to Berea, I'll ask you, since this is a Pennsylvania, uh, more, more of a Pittsburgh term, but y'all or yuns? Oh, y'all. <laughs> um, I don't, you didn't get that in Philadelphia. Um, no, no, but I just assumed. Much harsher, much harsher culture, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, well, Jim, we appreciate you taking the time, speaking to us a little bit about the housing market in and of Appalachia and, you know, what you guys do. We think Fahi obviously is an incredible organization. You do some incredible work and we appreciate you being on the show and taking the time. Uh, Well, it's my pleasure. So, Will, man, Jim is all over it. You, you mentioned the gold standard of affordable housing in Appalachia. You know, when I think about the gold standard, the first thing I think about is, is John Calipari's speech when he came to the University of Kentucky calling <laughs> us the gold standard of college basketball. So you have now laid put that label on Jim. And, you know, I, I agree with you. I would consider Fahey the gold standard when it comes to affordable housing in our region. Like I said in his opener, the National Housing Conference recognized him as a housing visionary. So it's like he is an Oscar award winner in the housing community. Absolutely. We First of all, we accepted him into Appalachia like we do. And <laughs> he, has, uh, he has really honestly committed his life to, to that organization there, Fahey. And I know he is, uh, was a great conversation and very humble. But it, it, it is really uh, impressive what he's accomplished there over the last 30 years. So I'm glad he took the time out to come on our show. Yeah, seriously. I, you know, we want to commend him for all the commitment, like you said, that he, he has put into Fahi and all the work that he's done throughout the region. Considering their work, I just wanted to highlight a couple things they have coming up. The Fahi Housing Forum, a virtual forum taking place July 21st. It actually brings together some senior officials from the federal government to speak with practitioners from some of the smaller communities that are not often heard throughout our region. So an excellent opportunity to hear about the housing affordability gap that's definitely growing in our country that we talked about on the episode. Check that out. You can register at fahi.org, the Fahi Housing Forum. Like I said, it's a virtual event taking place July 21st at two o'clock p.m. Eastern time. So that's one thing. The other thing I wanted to mention was the Fahi annual meeting. A lot has happened since their last annual meeting in 2021. So if you want to attend that, the title is Meet the Moment. It's September 20th through 22nd at the Meadowview Conference Center in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can register. Again, it's at fahi.org. Check that out. So, Will, do you have an app biz of the week for me? I do. This one is kind of in reference to something that we asked Jim and what he was talking about when he was talking about when we asked him the question about manufactured homes and if that kind of cut into this idea of building wealth or if they were, you know, oftentimes people think of manufacturing homes of being of lesser quality than other homes. But I want to talk about just kind of the manufactured homes versus mobile homes versus modular homes a little bit. You know, some of the older mobile manufactured homes are really low value. They have high energy uses, high vacancy rate. It's kind of counterintuitive for what we're talking about when it comes to affordable houses for low income or relatively low income individuals. The more energy efficient you can make the homes, the more affordable and the more opportunities for financial stability for individuals. So that being said, I wanted to mention a company that was established in Appalachia. Now I think they're nationwide. And when I say the name, I'm sure you're going to recognize it, but maybe not be familiar with it being in Appalachia. Clayton Homes. Yes, sir. Great business. And you think of it as a national company, but it started in Maryville, Tennessee, which is in Blount County. Just outside of Knoxville. Yep. And and Appalachia started in 1956. Jim Clayton, I guess, built his first home there 
they build mobile manufactured modular homes. And I just want to talk a little bit about the difference between mobile manufactured and modular. Pre-1976, everything was kind of referred to as a mobile home. And they, they were of lesser quality. They didn't really have much regulations. After 1976, the term manufactured, home, manufactured homes came on the market. And manufactured homes have to be up to HUD codes or HUD standards. So they have to be high quality. They have to be efficient. And then also modular homes. The difference between manufactured and modulars, I learned, modulars go by state and local codes, whereas manufactured go by HUD codes. But they all have to be regulated. They all have to be up to code. They all have to be high quality. So when we're thinking about these manufactured and modular homes today, you know, they're high quality. They're they're very efficient. And when you think about Clayton homes, the Clayton homes are very energy efficient, cost efficient, very good quality homes for affordable homes for the region. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I want to give a shout out. I want to give a specific, specific shout out. So they have different locations. And I think the lit different locations have a, a different name, but they're all referred to as Clayton. But the one in Andersonville, Tennessee, run by Matt Belcher, who is the GM there, it's called Appalachia Clayton Homes. So I want to give him a specific shout out. All right. What's Matt's connection to you, Will? <laughs> yeah, nothing. There's no, no family connection there. I just wanted to give a shout out. Like the name, Appalachia Homes. They build in quality, affordable, manufactured, modular homes through the Clayton brand. Absolutely. Great. Glad you mentioned them. And again, thanks to Jim for being on our show tonight. We really appreciate his time. And uh, I hope our listeners enjoyed it. So I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong In the mountains